Hello everyone, welcome back to the show of 500 Wineries on the Road. So thanks to each of you listen to us for our first episode. Uh, all the engagement definitely help us to produce more great content out there for you guys. And before we get into the topic today, let's talk about a little bit. How was our first champagne events last week over there uh, in Zurich? It was great. It was absolutely um, exciting to see the new venue that we selected for some of the events. But more than that, I think the crowd that came had a really, really good mix from people who were very, very familiar with the topic to people who were, for the first time, really appreciating the specifics of drinking champagne. So it was very, very good to see that. Uh, as well as like the champagnes we served were absolutely fantastic. Something that came up from from it that people really loved was how interactive it was because we got 3D maps to show really the plots and the terroir from which each of the champagnes came from, uh, all the way to very interactive games. So yeah, what did you think, Joe? Yeah, I think the events were great. We actually had two events. So um one corporate event with Google, and that was sponsored by Jacques Rousseau, a boutique rower in Champagne, and the other one was at Trust Square. So yeah, we had a really great time. Um, well, last time I was in Champagne, I bought a riddling rack, which for those who don't know, is one of those A-frames, uh, wooden deals that the wine producers use to help disgorge the wine as far as move all the yeast down to the bottom after the aging process. And we actually had very interactive competitions for which teams could riddle the wines the fastest with these great prizes of wine and chocolate. So uh, so it was a lot of fun, very interactive, like Chris said, and uh, we're looking forward to the new events coming up. Yeah, that's cool. Like, cause I saw those videos on our Instagram and the riddling competition looks super fun. Like everyone was so engaging. For anyone who wants to know what exactly riddling is, Please check the video on our Instagram. Also have the idea what our events look like and you might want to join one of those events for in the future. And so that's getting to the topic today. The topic today, I love it so much personally because it's all about the bizarre and interesting things we saw while tasting. Because we've all like been through so many tasting occasions like casual or with class or for Joe, it's probably more like exam circumstance more uh, strict so throughout all these tasting occasions we actually noticed there's so many different tasting ways and tasters i'd say some were so mysterious that i don't really get it but some are actually rather interesting that we will dig into more in detail right away but first of all in case some people are not familiar with what's wine tasting like we will have a quick introduction of the framework on how we approach the wine tasting. Generally speaking, during the wine tasting, we normally go through three steps. Start from the sight and the smell. By the end would be the taste. In the beginning, we observe the wine's color and also see if there's any sediment in the wine. Then move on to the nose where you sniff the wine to sense the different number of mass. Finally, we take a sip and taste. Among those processes, there are some tiny techniques you might see people doing to help better taste the wine or not. Now let's start with some questions to see if we do these specific techniques or not while tasting the wine. The first question is, do you raise your glass into the sky 
when you want to observe the color? One, two, three. No. No. Yes. I was like, I'm, no, 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 no. I mean, I said yes, saying no. Like the fact that the three of it said no. I have seen people do that to check if there is suspended sediment inside the wine. So sometimes it's helpful to raise it up to the light. Or if you don't have a white sheet of paper or a white table to be able to do that. So there is a way. But yeah, if you're going to assess the color, you want to hold it at a 45 degree angle and look down into it, uh, into a white tablecloth piece of paper or something to be able to observe the color of the wine. But there is one like situation where I can see like erasing it being very handy. Like normally some of the tastings that happen, especially like in the cellars where it's really dark, there's people, you know, like instinctively you will raise it to the light to see some of the contrast of the wine. But it's really hard to really see a color if you're in, in a setting that doesn't have the ideal contrast and light. Yeah, and I agree. And also, if you have something with sparkling, um, if you tilt it on an angle, look down into it, you're really not going to be able to see the the bubbles of the CO2. So you do want to raise it up to eye level to be able to assess the size of the bubbles and um, the speed of the bubbles as well. Yeah, so it really depends on the wines we're tasting and also the environments you are in. It's not like we just raise the glass for the sake of being so professional. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And uh, the next one, your favorite one, Joe. Yes. Do you swirl the glass before you smell or taste it? No. Initially, you want to be able to identify how strong or pungent the aromas are from the wine before swirling and adding in oxygen. So initially, you'll really want to assess if it's a very strong aroma or pronounced or if it's very light uh, aromas that come out of the glass. It's a sign of quality. Uh, After which you may swirl. But there are people out there in this world that excessive swirl. You know, four or five swirls around is definitely enough to get a, a good amount of oxygen inside the glass of wine. And, um, and just watch out for excessive swirlers. <laughs> so swirl or not is actually not making so much difference for tasting that one. Is that what you're stressing? Yeah, you, you do want to swirl to introduce oxygen to really start pulling out some of the aromas. But if the wine has already been sitting out and being exposed to oxygen already, swirling for five minutes straight is not going to do much good as far as introducing more oxygen and unlocking new, new aromas. But I think like what you said, and I really like it, is that, you know, like some of us who have been doing like tasting, more so you like professionally, more me like kind of like for fun. Uh, the etiquette that you start to see from these tastings is that people automatically swirl. But I really like what you said that the first approach to the wine should be without the swirl. So you truly see, is this a close wine? Is this a wine that it's very aromatic? And that starts to speak to the quality and the type of wine. So perhaps that's a good takeaway where when you approach a wine for the first time, you're tasting it to just hold on to that swirl until you can get acquainted to, you know, the aromas and then finally introduce that uh, oxygen for a more in-depth smell. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a tiny ritual that you play around before having wines, but for actually assessing wine, swirling, it's a topic that... Uh, it's a controversial. <laughs> Very controversial. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to the next one. Okay, the nose. How deep... Does your nose go into the tasting glass? Like how far you should go into the glass to get as much as possible the aromas in the wine? 
Yeah, well, as a as a newbie, you don't want to go too far in there because you will accidentally snort some wine. It happens to all the best of us. And unfortunately, if you get too far in there, it might go up your nose. Actually, it will go up your nose. Um, for me, after the swirl, my nose is deep inside there and trying to get as much aromas as I can in my nose. Um, after which... There's this thing that uh, technique people use called the sign of the cross. Very religious. If you take your nose and go up into the glass and left and right in the glass while it's it's in there, it unlocks different types of aromas as far as some of the uh, more floral aromas might be at the top end of the glass. If your nose is inside there, where the more um, stronger fruity aromas are going to be towards the bottom of the glass. So there is that uh, as a technique. But yeah, for me personally, I just like sticking my nose way down in there just so I can get a big initial smell of what's going on in that glass. And that could also be like an indication, right? Like on how much do you really need to put your nose in there? It's like the wine could be really, really close, which is really hard to perceive other aromas besides the alcohol or you know the strongest part of the wine and that can also be that you're really trying to identify a wine to remember what are some of the characteristics of that smell like for emily and joe who are wine professionals and really want to create that smell memory or that nose memory then you really need to spend more time acquainted getting acquainted to the very broad spectrum of smells so i would say like for anybody just get going there having fun having some tasting you know, yeah, it's good. It's okay to put your nose in there in the glass, but just don't overdo it and accidentally uh, store some of the wine. So now that we're speaking about the smell, I have this question for you folks, because I am a person who, you know, like, I don't think that I can finish perceiving the smell of the wine until I taste it. So, you know, when we are in a guided tasting where people are first going through these steps that Emily introduced at the beginning of the podcast, where you go first to like the sight, then the smell, then the taste. I am the type of person who's like, I am smelling and I am also taking a sip just to kind of like complement what I'm smelling. What are your thoughts around that? For me, personally, that if I'm not doing the exam, I'm a little bit more like Greece. I will need to smell and then taste. Because actually, in our human body, your nostril and the, all the, uh, your mouth structure is connected. So for me, if I after I smell it and then I taste it, I can feel more present about which kind of uh, flavors out there. But if it's during the exam that there's a specific structure I need to follow up. I will separate them, of course, because I need to try to focus on like how strong or what's the difference in between the nose and the palate. So that's my technique here. What about Joe? Yeah, I, I agree too. So um, in an exam, for those who are listening that haven't done a blind wine tasting exam under time, under pressure, um, you really want to have a system approach to this tasting and a standard operating procedure you do every single time without thinking. So the way that I do it is after I go to the smell, then I immediately taste the wine and I go into the acidity, tannin, alcohol body. But during those times, I'm also confirming some of those flavors that I had in the first part. But I don't think, as soon as I take a sip of, of wine, I'm thinking about acidity, tannin, and alcohol body. 
And then I'm like, towards the end, before I go to the finish, then I'm like, okay, what are those, some of those aromas that maybe that can reinforce or some of the aromas that I didn't catch because there are certain things that human beings can smell and sometimes you just can't taste them when it, when it's on your palate. Otherwise it's backwards too. Sometimes where you just can't smell certain things. Like for me, it's eucalyptus. I cannot smell eucalyptus in wine, but sometimes you can taste it, which is really interesting. So it's just everybody's body is a little differently. But yeah, I think if you're having fun and a good time, you know, smell and drink and all that stuff. But if you're part of a test, you know, such as a WSD level three or higher, you definitely want to have that standard operating procedure and hit it every single time. So I have a question for you, like now that you mentioned that. So for you folks who have um, prepared for professional tastings, you know, like we have read this and so a few documentaries out there in Netflix where, you know, you need to get acquainted to smells, right? Otherwise, everything smells like, to me, uh, like caramel. And I'm trying to generalize to these broader smells. So the question for you is, what has been the weirdest thing you have a smell during your training so then you know how to describe more specific smell? So mine is lychee. In the United States, oh, really? <laughs> lychee does not exist. I've never seen a lychee. Well, maybe it does, but I just in my first 42 years of life, I've never seen a lychee in the United States. Or, you didn't go to the rice supermarket. Exactly. Where I grew up in Wegmans, they didn't have, maybe they do have it now, but back then they didn't have lychee. They had apples, pears, and bananas, those kind of things. But a lychee, for those that don't, uh, don't know, it's just a small kind of berry the size of maybe four centimeters or maybe an inch. It looks uh, like a, like a, what is the name of this berry? Like a raspberry, it looks but like it's a, harsh. It's a hard raspberry and you peel it apart and inside has a little bit of flesh and this huge nut in the center of it. And it has this taste that's, it's gerverstraminer. It, it is, but every time that I would do these exams and I don't know what gerverstraminer tastes like until I was able to be introduced to a lychee and I was like, oh my gosh, that is gerverstraminer or Gerberchemia's lychee. I don't know, but Chris bought some some lychees, and I sat at the table and ate and ate and ate lychees, and I can never forget what lychee smells like ever again. It's just a very unique smell and taste. I don't know. It's just this, it's a really weird thing that I've never seen before living in the United States. Yeah, because like lychee for me is more like familiar uh, fruit. So when you say that word, I have like direct connection in my in my mind that what will it smells like. But for me, something I can never imagine, it's probably the barn, mm. like, you know, in the yeah. horses. The yeah, that's so rare before I start to learn about wine that I don't know what actually that smells like. You always read about it. People taste about like, oh, that's bread. I was like, what's that? And until I think one of our class, our professors, lettuce smells like some chemical compound. Exactly. Smells like barn. So I was like, oh my God, this is so strong. That's what barn smells like. For me, it's like that. That's so funny. So living in upstate New York, we've had our fair share of barns or where my parents had their cottage in Cape Vincent, New York, just plenty of barns. So I know exactly what a barn smells like, <laughs> and, but no lychee. <laughs> so here's the, here's this, like, uh, I don't know if you folks have read this book by uh, Bianca Bosker, like Quirk Thorik. She has this part of the book where she as narrating that she met this perfumer that was telling her how to get acquainted with the smells and she actually went to a doctor and I think like they were doing these sort of like monitoring her brain while she was getting acquainted with some of this like smells that she really wanted to be able to 
embed in her brain so she will be able to recognize it when she was spelling. So I think like a point that she makes is that this memory that you are mentioning, you know, like Emily growing up with lychees everywhere, like she will automatically recognize lychee and you like will automatically recognize the, the barn smell. I think that that is an approach of wine tasting that when you are perceiving the aromas and then communicating them, you're going to communicate them with this vocabulary that it's a embedded in your memories of the smells, but also what you are able to describe. That's why I asked this question about like, how do you get folks prepare? And I've meant the recognition of smells that you need to identify in the wines. Yeah, I agree. Like what you two just say, this is very background of you, the cultural view, what related to you, you're able to smell or you're able to taste more specifically. And then I think here we want to talk about is like through this training or tasting, what can help you to better communicate with your people or with the friends you're drinking with? so that you're on the same page that you can enjoy at the same time. I think that will be more important as well. Like you are all speaking about the same language. Exactly. And that, and that's and that's huge right there. And that's why I love the WSET. And you're able to communicate. If I smell cherry and you smell cherry, generally they're going to be the same smells. But if you describe something, which I've heard and I got it tasting by a quote professional, that the wine smells like the library on a warm spring day. I don't know what that smells like. I don't know if you know what that smells like. And I don't know if Gris knows what it smells like, but that's not a way to communicate wine. So some of the more elaborate descriptions of wine that are out there with some of the wine critics or professionals, you got to really be careful because um, that right there is not an identifiable smell to 99% of the people. Yeah. And there's like this documentary on Netflix I think it's like someone where they they are describing like a freshly open package of tennis balls and although I can't imagine the concept I don't know what that smells like right it's it's just crazy how elaborated this professionals can can really sound yeah man I think the the discussion about the smelling can keeps going on for forever because like it's all connected (laughs) with the memory and your like your experience so it's a, I think it's an interesting topic that we can all talk about now. But let's move on to the next one. I'm really, uh, really like it as well, the swishing. So for anyone who's not familiar with what swishing is, it's a tiny gesture you do while you have the first sip of the wine. Meanwhile, letting through a little bit of air with the wine to help the wine open up that we believe that's what's swishing for I'm sure some of you might have seen some sommeliers do this in a restaurant. But Joe, I can see from here that you're not such a big fan of switching, right? Tell me. (laughs) You know, that's why we're allowed to wear earplugs during the middle of tasting exams. You know, if you didn't introduce all the air to the wine while you're swirling around, yeah, maybe there's some air that can be possibly added to the wine when it goes into your mouth. And I've heard some really loud swishes. I've heard some silent swishes. Um, You'll want to swish it around your mouth to coat the inside of your mouth, especially when you're assessing tannin and acidity. But by making loud noises, by sucking in oxygen, I think it's... I don't know. I think a lot of people do that just to show off personally. I'm curious on Grace's opinion on this one, though. What's your thought on when you see people do this whenever we're in a winery or in a restaurant? 
I'm going to say like me as a novice who, who, you know, like I don't need to do this at exam or anything. I will approach the topic from like a really cultural background, like me growing up from in a Latin family, you know, where you are educated to do not make sound when you're drinking or eating. To me, I just hear that. And, you know, like my mom is in the back of my head, like telling me off for being loud. And it really disrupts my experience because I find it rude. Mm -hmm. I understand, you know, like the objective of coating your entire palate to really assess acidity and tanning and really enjoying the wine. But you can do that very, very like, you can still have a sip, making sure the wine covers your palate and actually like having a mindful tasting of what you're drinking without the unnecessarily noise that I think really what bothers me but to that point i know that other cultures see it as you know a sign of professionalism when you're drinking the wine so i think like it's really up to you know the cultural background in which you come from so yeah yeah so um i myself i have made noises when i'm tasting so if anybody's listening who sat next to me in the <laughs> the d3 for the wst diploma with earplugs <laughs> on so when i assessed um the finish of a wine, I make a sound with my uh, tongue and my upper palate. And that was the way that I was taught to be able to assess it to a certain amount of times and give a long or short finish. But over time, I've actually made it more silenced by closing my mouth and you cannot hear it when I'm doing it now. But it was something that I used to do. And now I'm much more mindful to Chris's point it's very disruptive if you're in a professional tasting or you're with friends and you have all this like really random noises and people are looking at you. I just, I try to keep it as professional as possible. So what I'm getting from this question is do what you need to do. Just be mindful. Don't be too loud. And just have in consideration that loud might be rude for some cultures. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And to your point, you know, if you're in a tasting with a diverse culture and I don't know if, you know, example would be, even the Asian culture, which Amelie maybe can talk to, that maybe this is a sign of disrespect uh, for other people in that tasting, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I think like you took this point, it's very cultural thing as well. Because for me personally, I'm really uh, the sound sensitive person. So if I'm in an exam, if I'm next to Joe and he makes this things, I will be like so annoying, probably like staring at him for a hundred times. But I think because like we say cultural things, I think in Japan, like if you eating food, making sounds is kind of representing you have respect to the cook who make it. So I think it really depends. But for the point, I do agree that we should be mindful like when you do the sounds. Okay, talk about being loud during the tasting. What about right after all this uh, tasting step during the commenting part? Are you a loud talker, like a long commenter who talks for 30 minutes? at the dinner table? I'd say no. I, you know, and I have to stop myself when teaching too, because I want to identify what I'm smelling in the wines as soon as I um, tell the participants to go ahead and smell it and to taste the wine. So there is a power of suggestion when wine tasting. If I smell and I say that this tells this, this smells like blackberry, 95% of the rooms will be like, oh yeah, I smell blackberry too, right? So for me, I'm now more reserved and more mindful about saying things in front of others and allowing people to basically voice their opinions because kind of what we talked about earlier is 
everybody has their own palate, their own smell, their own everything. And I want to be able to hold back and listen before I voice my opinion. So yeah, I'm not definitely not the first person to raise my hand. Again, I want to hear maybe uh, there's a different point of view from Greece. I'm going to answer the question from a different angle. I think like one thing is to kind of want to be the like know it all and like raise your hand and share. But there's another aspect of a lot of people do wine tasting as a social kind of like entertaining thing and do it with friends. So when they're getting, you know, like very comfortable and they're having so much fun, you might just turn around and kind of discuss with your friends. I think generally speaking, I tend to be very respectful of the person giving the tasting and try to not be as loud. You know, you have somebody kind of like telling you some story about the wine, so I probably wouldn't, you know, be as comfortable just enjoying myself loudly with my friends. Exactly. I love all the sharing from people who are more extroverted. As an introvert person, we also have feelings for wine. And actually with my friends, we play this game where right after you take the sip of the wine, we say nothing until we count down from like three, two, one. And we'll all say the first impression on that wine at the oh. same time. So no one gets cool. influenced. And this topic actually leads to one thing I want to mention here quickly. The events and the experience we're dedicating now is that to whoever join us in an event could enjoy the freedom to share their feelings without any pressure and judgment. Because when I first started in this industry, I always felt so intimidating or afraid to share my opinions because I didn't have any experience. But now I do believe that we can only learn more through exchange more opinions. Yeah, and as a facilitator of these events, um, my job is to get maximum participation from everybody. And by breaking down the barriers initially and basically putting out there that there are no wrong answers here and gives people an opportunity to express themselves. And even if I kind of know that the answer is not 100% correct, I'm not going to tell them in front of everybody it's incorrect. And that gives them the opportunity to continue on and to be able to share instead if you shut them down initially and the poor person this is brand new to wine they said that's low tannin when it's actually pretty high um you know there's a way that a facilitator can really massage that and get to the right answer rather than shutting down somebody because how embarrassing it is if you're the first person to say something and it's completely wrong and then the instructor says that you're wrong you'll never want to share again Yeah, we've all been there to be the first person who shout out the answer loud and it's a wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I'm going to ask you Rose, to another topic. What about the spitting the wine? Spitting the wine after you taste it. So this weekend, we actually went to, to a wine tasting fair here. We visited a few stands and I'm always like, I never know if it's okay to spit or not, but I personally think like if you are going to spend four hours tasting wine, you can spit, but a few people still get very offended when you spit the wine. And some people like don't even have like spit buckets. So what, what are your thoughts? I'm totally double hands up on spitting the wine. And I encourage people who attend those wine fairs to speed especially. At some of these events, your taste probably more than 50 wines a day. And by the end of the day, if you're not speeding, I'm not sure you can still identify what's in your glass. But if you're there for drinking, 
that's another case. Oh, but one thing for me, during a wine exam, I will swallow a little bit to fully assess the wine to see what's the length of the finish on that wine. I think you should sweet while you think you should, just so to be a responsible taster and drinker. Yeah, I think it's a cultured thing too. Professionals generally spit. If you're in Napa Valley and you're out uh, partying and having a good time going across, you don't spit. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen spit buckets in some of those Napa Valley um, wineries. Um, me personally, I have to spit or I'll get drunk pretty quick. And if you think about it, there are 25 ounces in a bottle of wine. If you drink 25 wines at a fair like we were at yesterday, and that was pretty quick. We've drank many more than 25 wines. You could drink several bottles of wines that you don't even know that you're drinking bottles of wines because you're not drinking full glasses. If you're tasting that much, you have to spit or you're going to get drunk. Um, I will swallow some things. If it's a sweet wine, it's only 7% alcohol by volume. Of course, I'll, I'll swallow those. So take away, it's okay to spit. Don't, it's okay to don't, spit. Don't feel ashamed. Although it did happen to me like in, in a burgundy tasting. That the, Remember, we all were together in that one where mm -hmm. the, the taste really mad at me for asking for the best speed cup but it was also 10 a.m <laughs> <laughs> yeah the time you do tasting is also another fact if you speed or not me personally i don't think i can take wine as a breakfast unless it's something special like green crew something so all that discussion with you guys on wine tasting were super interesting and i'm sure if we keep going on it will become another episode but I'm glad that we get to sit down and talk about all of those fun details that we experienced. And today we covered the whole wine tasting process from the sight, smell, and taste. Also all the tricks and nuances there. But what we are really want to point it out here, there are no right or wrong answers to how you do the taste. The most essential part is to find out your own metrics that you feel comfortable with and you can fully enjoy what's in your glass. So before ending this episode, is there anything else you guys want to share that you think we're missing? Yeah, so I'm going to put a plug in for the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. They are not sponsoring uh, this, this event, <laughs> but I had the opportunity to choose between a couple different ways to start my wine journey. And there's small yay stuff out there and there's other things. Um, I'm just a huge fan of WICT and the idea behind creating a structured approach to tasting and through their three levels of, of tastings, it gets progressively more complicated and in depth to the point where level three is the basically professional level until you get into the level four, which is the extreme professional level, but uh, usually people end at level three. But I'm a huge, huge supporter of the WSET and what they do in creating this approach to tasting where anybody without any experience can start with level one like I did at very level one, super basic and progress through and be confident to every step you take and every exam you take and the more in depth. I was just so appreciative of the structure approach to tasting that um, hopefully that we will uh, here at 500 wineries and the Zurich Wine Academy hopefully start teaching WSET. That's how firm believer I am in their process and their structured process that um, I, I truly believe in what they do. So if if you are interested in taking the next step in your wine journey, I highly suggest trying out level one. 
There is a limited financial component to it and they could do it online or in person, but it's a really good way to start this whole process and to really start understanding tasting. So I'm a big fan, huge shout out to the WICT. I totally agree. I've done WSAT levels two and three in life myself. And from personal experience, with a little bit structure on your wine learning journey, it definitely helps me to build up my own tasting method. And I'm sure you'll be able to explore more than before. So if you want to know more about our Zurich Wine Academy, don't forget to follow us on our Instagram and also subscribe to our website. Stay tuned. Until next time. Bye. Bye.